and welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is Russ Piazza, President and CIO of Front Street Capital Management with approximately $500 million in assets under management. Russ, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So, Russ, tell me a little about your story, how you got started in the business. Uh, so, really, our story uh, revolves around uh, our our quest, really, to identify uh, companies that have cultures uh, that can draw out or unleash, as we call it, the best in human potential. And the way we do that is that we look for companies that have very specific management criteria. Uh, and our criteria is uh, that uh, the integrity of the people that uh, we are partnering with uh, the fact that they have a long-term focus, uh, they have purpose and passion for the business, uh, teamwork, which is actually cooperation versus competition, uh, employee empowerment, which for us that means driving fear out of the organization, uh, and disciplined capital allocation. Nice. And so... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask before we jump into the the, the strategy, the investment strategy, more along your story as far as how you got involved in the business, personally. Yeah, so uh, started uh, right out of college. Mm-hmm. I was 21 years old. Got hired by a, a regional brokerage firm, uh, and as you and probably most of your listeners would know, more geared, which I didn't know at the time, uh, was geared towards a sort of a sales job. Yep. But for some reason or another, uh, I had this idea that. You know, I wanted to be an investor and to figure out some way to compound capital over long periods of time. And I had no background. It's just kind of an idea that that's the direction that felt better for me. So we really kind of went on a wandering quest uh, to try to find some process uh, that was consistent and that could be replicated over time. And uh, led me down to a you know, there was a few green shoots, but a lot of dead ends. Uh, and eventually, uh, thank God, I, I uh, found the work of uh, Ben Graham, uh, which, as everybody probably knows, a very uh, uh, quantitative uh, approach to uh, investing, and which then led me to uh, the work of Warren Buffett, obviously. And I was just starting to scratch the surface of uh, Buffett's work and his career, uh, when I read an article in Forbes magazine in 1988. Okay. And the introduction was uh, by Warren Buffett, and it was uh, an investor by the name of Phil Fisher. Okay. Phil had written several books in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, the most prominent was uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. Now, Russ, is that is that Ken Fisher's father? That is Ken Fisher's father. Got it. Although they have very different approaches. Okay. Uh, in fact, I, I think Phil had only a handful of clients. He was uh, the opposite of a marketing person. Gotcha. Um, and so Phil's work was <clears throat> on the other side of the equation, which is uh, qualitative value rather than quantitative. So Phil's idea was that if you could find a, a company – uh, that was outstanding, that had characteristics 
that would give them a distinct advantage over their peers for a long period of time. Yep. Um, and it was, and then his core for that was a particular management style that he was had developed and was developing. Um, that that company would have uh, again uh, a distinct advantage over their peers and would be uh, a very attractive uh, situation for a very long term investor. Okay. And for me, the idea of how you treated the employees, it just totally resonated with me. And for me, that was my epiphany. Got it. And so I devoured uh, Fisher's books, you know, immediately. Um, and literally right when I got done with that work, uh, I obviously went out and started to look for companies that had uh, these characteristics. And there just happened to be at the firm I was with at the time, uh, a brokerage report that talked about uh, a company that was um, obsessed with manufacturing excellence, which was really kind of a core of what Phil was all about. Right. And so I immediately went to work on this company. It was the first thing I did after reading these books. Uh, and through my research uh, and in, in conversations with the company, lo and behold, uh, Phil Fisher uh, owned the same stock. Oh, wow. <laughs> he only owned seven companies at the time. Wow. And actually, I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version of this story. Because <laughs> the entire version is even more bizarre. Mm. You so go, I like freaked out. You can go there if you want. <laughs> we like bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can come back to it. But, okay. Uh, so I, I wound up doing something I'd never done and I haven't done since. Uh, but I wrote him a fan letter. Nice. And uh, he responded immediately. He was 81 years old at the time. And um, how old were you? His, In your 20s or 30s? Uh, I was I was 31 at that point in 1988. Wow. wow. And so uh, it was really cool. And so his comment was, "Well, you know, I'm not I'm not quite sure about uh, this company that you're investigating." He had his companies in two categories. Mm -hmm. uh, one were um, uh, more permanent holdings, and the others were probationary holdings. Mm -hmm. And this was one of his probationary companies. Uh, he said, "But you know, if you're going to do this work, you got to get on a plane and you got to go visit these guys, because that was really the core of Fisher's concept was this idea of scuttlebutt that you went and did the work, uh, you got out and, and did the shoe leather work, right?" And so, uh, and he said, you know, while you're back there, there's a company that's not too far from there that, you know, he thought had all the right characteristics and that he would be uh, happy to introduce me to them. Okay. And I go, really? That'd be awesome. Yeah. So I was on a plane, like, immediately. Right. And I was the guest of Phil Fisher at this company. Wow. And so, as you can imagine, my career path was totally set in stone. So you, that's where the qualitative management style was. I'm I'm heading that direction, and I'm not looking back. So let me just recap. So twenty out of college, twenty twenty one, twenty two. You get a job. You're working brokerage. You're thinking that you're going into the investment management side. You're going to be able to invest and analyze stocks and make money, compound returns. Yada, yada, yada. What happens, though, is you realize it's a much different reality. 
Series 7 brokerage work. It's a rep, re, you're registered rep. You're, it's a sales job. You got to pick up the phone, smile and dial and get customers and then charge commission per transaction, dot, dot, dot. So instead of managing money and focusing on the high level stuff, you the job itself was just, hey, grow, get accounts, grow your book of business and sell, sell, sell. So then you shifted and you realized yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not really wanting to disparage the industry. I mean, it is what it is. And I don't really know what it is today because we're out of it. Right. Uh, but, you know, it, our career path was really uh, was well defined at that moment is, is our our most important point. So, yeah, but you wanted something else. You had a, a thirst for more. So then you said, OK, let me shift and, and learn. So you came across Graham and then Buffett and then Fisher. And you noticed a common theme there was investing in for the long term, A, and then B, finding a culture of excellence or manufacturing excellence, like you said, and then focus on companies that do the right thing and do well by their employees. So I guess um, then you had the aha moment, like you said, the epiphany, when you realize that this is what you want to do. And then you shifted out of the brokerage business, you moved into the RIA money management business, or how did that transition Well, we happen? actually, we helped uh, the regional firm that we were at in, here in Missoula, Montana, create their own discretionary fee-based system okay. for the pilot program. Uh, we kind of kind of made that work. We made it work. Uh, it wasn't the best situation, but um, as most of your listeners probably know, you know, uh, having a terminal disease is probably more pleasant than moving a book. <laughs> so as long as we could make it work, uh, we did. But we finally got to the point where, you know, we had to uh, branch out on our own. And in 2006 is when we started Front Street Capital. In 2011, we launched our own no-load mutual fund. Oh, perfect. Okay, so that's the next segue, I guess. Can you talk a little about your investment strategy and then what you guys offer now. Yeah, just uh, one one yeah. more recap before yeah, sure. we leave uh, sure. the other subject. Sure. Um, that company that I visited in 1988. Yes. We still own it today. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So tell us about the visit. What did you guys do when you were and out it's there? It's the second largest company in our portfolio. Oh, wow. The holding. Wow. So how was the actual visit when you met with management? Did you grill them like an activist type of a management, uh, sorry, movie kind of portrays it? Or were you going in there to do your due diligence? Or what was the actual meeting like? Oh. Yeah, no, I just went in there and said, teach me. Gotcha. I just want to learn. I I, I, I wanted you to teach me. You know, I, I had no, I had no, nothing to give back to the company. Right. I wanted to learn everything they did. Nice. So that I could replicate that in finding other companies in the future. Oh, I love that. Wow. Yeah, and I did that, you know, I just kind of tagged on to Phil as much as I could for as long as I could until he finally said, you're a pest, get away from me. <laughs> um, because if you had access to anything from him, it would prohibit you from doing your own work. Right. It was a great learning experience, but when he things got better really uh, for us over time, once he quote unquote kind of kicked me out of the nest. Understood. And that's usually how it is yeah. too in this kind of business where it's you've got to learn how to fly. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I was a total pest. Understood. So um, tell us a little about your investment strategy. So you can I know you touched on it at the very beginning of the show, but if you want to go into it in more detail now, that'd be uh, fantastic. Yeah, so we, we think to be successful in any endeavor, but particularly in, in this endeavor, we think the most important thing or the a very important thing is to be, to be able to identify what it is you know. Right. 
we think way more important, we have you have to identify what it is you don't know. Right. And um, we think that to protect yourself from what you don't know, mm-hmm. the only way you could do that is to make sure you get everything right possibly that you can know. Right. And put no all your efforts on what you can know and literally no energy into what you can't know. Okay. That's really hard to do. Yeah. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So, and by the way, never, ever, ever override what you do know with what you don't know. Oh, wow. That's a great rule. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's excellent. So we, we think the vast majority of investors make the vast majority of their decisions based upon a set of variables that have no predictive value whatsoever. Interesting. And in that category, we put all geopolitical macroeconomic events. So hold on. Before we go deeper, just help me, if you don't mind, illustrate to the audience, what would be an example of what you know versus what you don't know and then how not yeah, so never, what we never don't know yeah. is uh, how things are going to transpire with China's growth rate and trades and tariffs. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, it was Greece that was going off the cliff. And right. A few years before that, it was Argentina. And there's natural disasters and there's wars. And yeah. there, do, I need, do I need to go on? No, understood. Those, understood. You know, and, yeah. and all of those things. We think that there are so many variables right. that, you know, the equation just literally becomes unpredictable. Right. And the, and the most important thing, in our opinion, is that the knowledge is not cumulative. Oh, wow. So That's a really good point. I never thought, I mean, 40 years I've been in the business, and this is the first time I've seen a trade war. Right. And I would imagine with our younger folks here in the in our office, that they might not see one for the rest of their careers again. Right. And it has nothing to do with whatever the next crisis or panic is going to be at some later date. So you're always running on a treadmill. Right. However, we think because most people make their decisions heavily influenced by those things, then stock prices fluctuate violently based upon changes on those events. Right. And we think what happens in turn is it draws more and more people into it, into that game. Because nobody likes to get just washed around in the waves with no control over where they're at. Understood. And so that draws, it's kind of a vicious cycle. And really we think the higher somebody's IQ is, the more they think they are compelled to go in because they're so much smarter than everybody that they ought to be able to weave in and in and out of this stuff. Right. They can outsmart. And it yeah. can't be done. So that's an example. And then the, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. Go ahead. No, no, by all means. Yeah, the big one, though, is, in our opinion, is the larger the pool of money, the more that they really feel a fiduciary obligation almost to hire somebody that can figure this out. Got it. And when that turn, when, when they turn to the point to where they fail at it, they just fire them and go find somebody else that claims that they could do the same thing. Right. 
And so, you know, tremendous amount of resources are moving uh, based upon predictions of what we think are unpredictable. So what would to be... make matters, we yeah. think, even more interesting, yeah. I truly believe that folks that focus on this stuff for a living, yeah. they wake up some morning and they recognize that they don't know what they're doing. They get whipsawed back and forth so many times. Right. Unfortunately, they don't hang up their cleats. They go back to work the next day and push it in the back of their mind in our opinion, it probably makes the decision-making even more emotional. Oh, uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. And this thing, we think, just keeps feeding on itself. And then the ultimate injustice for these poor folks, in our opinion, is that it's a paramutual system. Meaning? Uh, meaning the, yeah. the, the favorite horse has the, has the smallest payout. Right. And so they might actually get a piece of this right from time to time, and the prices move in the opposite direction. Yeah, that's a, I've seen that before. That's a very, very good point. So we kind of view the whole thing as a total mess. Now, what about the things you do know? Oh. Um, so we think that all the stock market is is a place for you to buy a business. Okay. Nothing more complicated than that. Okay. And we think if you're buying a business, it's the same as buying anything. What are the two variables that you're going to use to buy something? The value and price. And they are, what's the quality of the merchandise? Right. And how much am I paying for it? Yeah, value and price, exactly. And we think, over time, you can get really good at that. Got it. So, And the more yep. time you spend with it, we think the knowledge is cumulative. You learn about one business, it helps you with another. And we think over time, um, you know, a la kind of Phil Fisher, but that you can create a criteria that would enable you to identify why one company would be have a superior advantage over their peers. And we think as time goes on, you can get that tighter and tighter and tighter as your work gets better and better and better. And we think eventually you can get to the point where you can see that target company crystal clear, not ambiguous. I love that. Now, what about that clarity? Can you share with the audience? How do you, based on your experience in the market and how you view, play the game, the value like beauty is subjective, right? So how do you determine what the value or the quality of the merchandise is that you're buying? And then how do you Yeah, it's based upon the criteria that we talked about. Okay. And um, I think if, if we could go into that just a little yeah, bit later. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Follow through on this yeah. same thread for a second. Sure, by all means. Um, so, uh, A, we think this, you know, what basically we, we think what we have become mm -hmm. is a learning organization. Okay. That we're just trying to learn more and more and more so we can identify these opportunities. And that's totally fun. Okay. And then the next step is to identify what would represent a fair price to pay. Right. And so we think that that, um, uh, that uh, part of the equation is, you know, basically what you're doing is you're looking at what the company is earning today. And then you look out as far as you can see into the future 
as to what the trajectory of that earnings or cash flow stream would be. Uh, and then and you use a lot of different variables. Is a cyclical company where they're at in the cycle, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can look out and, and make some good judgment as to what the trajectory of that earnings stream would look like, then you can come up with a pretty narrow range as to what would represent a fair price to pay today. Interesting. So you look at forward earnings and then you figure more or less as an estimate of where they'll be. And then you do you also look at the value of anything, any other components like the return on equity or any of the other vast amount? You kind of look at everything in general to make that determination. But it's basically what are they earning today? And what's the, the slope of that curve likely to be in the future with obviously a margin of safety? Uh, um, you know, okay. nothing grows uh, too rapidly over long, long periods of time. Right. The law of large averages. The longer you can see, in our opinion, the greater your odds of success. And we actually think we have many companies, several companies, where we can pretty clearly see, you know, what that business would look like 20, 30 plus years from now. So that irrespective of, of the economy or the market or any of those other unknowns that you mentioned before, the macro and geopolitical, all that fun stuff. Yeah, we understand that there's going to be cycles. They'll go through recessions, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it, you got to look at the number uh, as, a, as a number that would, you know, through all the cycles uh, and then base the trajectory on top of that. So can you give an example to the audience of how you... And, and really, the, 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 uh, with the, in our opinion, I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into the trajectory side, but yeah. really the, to, to get the, the earning side and the cash flow side, to, in our opinion, yeah. um, with the help of a value line and a crayon, you can get there. That was my question. Okay, so if, can you give an example of how the earnings would translate the price? So if you, do you go based on EPS or do you go based on annual earnings or quarterly earnings? Or I mean, if you can speak to that a little bit in a more concrete fashion, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I would say annual um, normalized earnings that, you know, given where they're at in the cycle. Okay. And then some kind of a growth rate on top of that and then a, a general PE. Oh, perfect. So if you would say, okay, the company's earning, let's say, a dollar and you expect them to grow by, I don't know, 5% or 10% a year for the next three to five years. And then you say, okay, there's a multiple on top of that. That's how you get a good price. Is that more or less the the formula? Perfect. Totally. And, and you know, Graham's got a little uh, chart uh, in the Intelligent Investor that just lays out some uh, pretty general uh, growth rates and what one would, should, would be willing to pay. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And then how about the value side of the equation? We get to, You said we get back to that later. Can you speak to that a little bit, how you determine the quality of the merchandise? Yeah, so I mean, it's just what we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, the the management criteria. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, you want to just dive into that? Yeah, if you want to, unless if you want to go somewhere else, cool. by all means, however you want to go. Oh, cool. let's do it. Uh, just finish one thought, and we'll get into that. Sure. Uh, so the the concept is that if we can identify the target and we can see it very clearly. Yeah. And then we can identify what represents a, a fair price to pay for somebody who wants to own that business for a long period of time. Yes. And we can see those two things that is not ambiguous. Yep. Then we think the more hideous and erratic and 
everything else, everybody else's behavior based upon a set of variables mm-hmm. that they have literally that have, has no predictive value, the better it is for us. I love that. And we think a lot, yeah. a lot of investors work in an area of state of hysteria. Yeah. And we think we can work in a state of somewhat clarity or calmness. I love that. That's a really, really good point. The great challenge, by the way, <laughs> is that, you know, A, yep. that, you know, we think we're viewing the world through a different lens. Right. So we're taking the same information that everybody else is getting, but coming to a different conclusion. Right. And that's our big advantage. You're not going to wake up every day and be smarter than everybody. Right. And or you're not going to wake up every on day. on the flip side. And be moved. Yeah. Getting our clients. Right. To see the world through that same lens yeah. is a total uphill battle. Understood. And that is our whole mission as an RIA is to get people to be long-term and, yeah. to, and to not get sucked in to that frantic game that everybody else is, is uh, involved with. And it's very, very difficult. You yeah. know, we don't try to smooth out the line. We try to get, we do the, what is the unthinkable. We try to get our clients to accept that this is not a linear process. Right. And that is super difficult. Absolutely. And everything else about this job is the funnest thing you could possibly imagine. That part is not. I get it. I fully, fully get it. <laughs> You're asking people to, like you said, it's an unthinkable, it's unimaginable to them, right? Something they can't fathom. They've never thought of this before. So that's a big, big challenge on your end. Yeah, you can get them to understand it at first. I mean, we go through what we call the gauntlet with them. Right. And that we try to tell them everything that can go wrong and and uh, they're going to get this thing in their gut that's so terrible and there's going to be these movements that are attached to human tragedies and you know, you're going to get all this advice as to how stupid you are for being a long-term investor. And we try to talk them out of it. Right. And we can kind of get them to, you know, to understand it at the beginning. But trying to keep that maintained is, uh, that's our whole purpose. If you looked on our website, it's all about, you know, pounding those, that same theme again and again and again. Yeah, I love that. Right. I can't go knock on somebody's door and say, hey, guess what? I'm going to make you feel terrible. At some point, your, your value, your portfolio is going to go down 20%. You're going to want to throw up. You know, you just can't, you know, it, it has to be somebody. Uh, it has to be people that have been referred in, and then we push back on them. Understood. But that's Unless whole... somebody has some idea, but we have no idea. There's no way to market this. No, I fully understand. And that's the whole, your whole selling proposition or right? the value proposition is that you're doing things differently. And when everybody's going crazy, when they want to throw up or the market's down for whatever reason, you're, you keep your calm, cool head about you because you're expecting that to happen and you're planned for it. Well, that's our opportunity. Right, exactly. Therein lies the opportunity. That's, we we exactly. wait for – I mean that's when we really add the most value by far. Right, and we cannot be too distracted at that point. Right. You know, I am not the most pleasant. I mean, if people call in, I've got work to do, man. Right. Understood. So um, to keep moving forward, because we do have uh, time constraints, 
what about the the value side of the equation? Can we touch about that a little bit as how you you, yeah, you so, value the quality? Well, let's go if you if it's okay with you, just yeah. go deeper into the criteria. Sure, by all means. Yeah, and maybe I'll just add this to you know, uh it, it's sort of connected to what was the best piece of advice that I ever got. Yeah, I'm going to exactly <laughs> go go in there. Uh so when I met with Phil Fisher, yes. uh the first time and the first thing he said was, this is 1988 or 89, right. um, he said that you have to learn everything that was going on in Japan at the time. Yes. And if you remember, it was really the Japanese miracle, the business miracle. Right, of course. Um, and so, obviously, I, you know, immediately did. And that led us to the work of W. Edwards Deming. Okay. Deming was a fellow that was invited to Japan after World War II to help them with reconstruction. Okay. And uh, the Japanese built their entire uh, business philosophy around Deming's work and particularly the Toyota production system. Right. Deming was a statistician. Okay. Um, and his concept, which was not... Uh, it's like, again a long story, but was not well accepted in the United States. Was to try to statistically figure out when the production process was going somewhat awry, so you could catch it before it turned into a very costly event. Okay. And he did that statistically, and he was a pure statistician. If you looked at old videos of him, uh, he was actually kind of socially awkward. Okay. Um, and but. In, in his work, what he found was that the way that you make these adjustments eventually um, was by encouraging um, and incentivizing human behavior in a particular way. Okay. And, he, and he went from being a very dry statistician to being a very dry humanistic um, uh, advisor to companies. And he developed a whole set of tools, you know, that um, created a different culture in the organization. So our criteria is based upon the foundation is Phil Fisher's work, but the heart of it is, Dem is W. Edwards Deming. And then on top of that, over the last 38 years, we've had the privilege of owning for decades many outstanding companies that we've learned from. And so we've sprinkled some of that into this criteria, and that's where the criteria sits today. So I guess do you, the best piece of advice, do you want to share that now or do you want to get to that later? Yeah, no, the best piece of advice was introducing me to the Deming Got philosophy. It. Okay. And that would basically – so, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, basically, that means, if I understand you properly, is to look for the errors that will happen before they happen and plan for them. So you reduce the errors or reduce the losses, so to speak, and let the winners run. I mean, is that more or less the advice? Oh, no. Sorry. Uh, uh, I, missed, I, I, didn't, uh, I wasn't clear enough, I guess. The, uh, the, 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 uh, the magic of it is in uh, the incentive systems uh, to uh, encourage the proper human behavior. Oh, it's a behavior the side of it. The statistical part led Understood. Uh, to the humanistic side. Got and it. it's the humanistic side that is the core of our foundation. I got it. Okay. I thought you were talking about the part when he's helped with the production plan, but that's led to the human side. I got it. 
That led to the human side, absolutely. Okay, so it's good that I clarified. Not that there's anything, uh, I mean, there's a lot of value in the statistical side, but it's the human side that we really connected with. Got it, got it. And have gone totally deep into. So on to it, I guess the next question here is, how do you handle risk, Russ? And, and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Okay. Well, um, risk is a little bit turned upside down these days. Okay. Uh, and we think uh, there's a danger out there uh, that is as formidable as anything I've ever seen in my career. Which and is? so we think that investing is about putting money up today mm-hmm. with the expectations of getting something more back in the future, right? Right. Risk reward. Yep. So it's a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. Yeah, risk and reward. That's simple. Yep. yep. And so the, uh, the investor's job is to look in the bush. Is there two in the bush? Is there three in the bush? Um, and can you get them out of the bush? But it basically it revolves around looking out into the future, uh, quoting Warren Buffett, you know, between now and Judgment Day, uh, figuring out what that cash flow stream may or may not look like, and then determining what would represent a fair price to pay. Right. So the critical element is the cash flow stream. Right. Without the cash flow stream, there's, we think, there's no way to value it. Okay. You would just be hoping somebody would pay you more later for some emotional reason. Right. And people buy, invest in stuff all the time, we think speculate in stuff all the time that does not have a cash flow stream. It'd be gold and commodities and, you know, Bitcoin maybe. Right. Um, but there's no cash flow stream. So we, our, our uh, attitude towards that, if they make a lot of money, uh, you know, good for them. If they lose a lot of money, we feel bad for them. But we think it's a pure speculation. The odds of success are not very good. Okay. So you have to have a cash flow stream. And we think, you know, we're pretty simple-minded here, but there's really only three asset classes that have this cash flow stream. Mm-hmm. And they are, uh, a business obviously has a cash flow stream, hopefully. Right. And again, all the stock market is is a place for you to buy a business. Right. So we'll put the stock market in that category, equities in yep. general. Yep. Real estate can have a cash flow stream under the proper circumstances. For sure. And fixed income securities or bonds, bonds yeah. have a cash flow stream by definition. Right. And so uh, we think out of these three asset classes uh, that once in a while, for some weird reason or another, um, most in, a, a large percentage of investors decide that one of them is more attractive than the other two. Okay. And what that does is it drives up the value of the entire asset class higher and higher. The cash flow stream never changes that much. Right. So they're paying more and more for the same cash flow stream. Right. And we think eventually when that occurs, the price being paid versus the cash flow, the potential that could come off of it becomes a de minimis number. Oh, I see what you're saying. A ridiculously small number. So is that the danger you were referring to earlier when I asked the question? Yes. Got it. Yeah. And so 
we think that um, that uh, that is the beginning of a bubble. When people, and, and it's the part of a bubble that everybody can see. Oh my God, why would you pay that much for that little of return? It's crystal clear. Right. And so that's, we think, is the beginning of the, it's the second part of the bubble that gets everybody. And that is it hangs there. Right. Year after year after year after year until right. people become immune to right. the fact that this thing is totally out of whack. And, you know, in investing, we think if we think you can get the if right. But if we think if you need to get the win right, you're eventually going to get hammered. Right. And we think people generally always need to know when. And there's a certain point in all these bubble cycles yeah. that people capitulate. Yeah. Oh, my God, I was wrong. Everybody else is doing it. It was obvious it was a stupid thing to do, but I'm, I'm going to capitulate and join in. Right. And then the bubble gets bigger and bigger and more grotesque. Right. And you never know when they're going to break. No. But we think the longer it is that they stay in this ridiculous condition, the closer you get to the cliff, not the opposite. Yep. And unfortunately, the more people get hurt because the more people keep capitulating and piling in. Yeah, I think it was Jesse Livermore who had the line of the best um, way to advertise a stock is its price. Totally. Yeah. And that speaks to your point. So, if, if, you, if you don't mind, uh, we'll talk about my demographic group. Okay. The baby boomers. Sure. We're a huge demographic group, and when we have morphed from one life cycle change to the next, we've created massive distortions in the financial markets. So we think early on... We had enough time for retirement. Right. There's some cool things going on in technology. By the way, we were super cool. And so um, it, the, the, the boomers created the first bubble um, for themselves, which was in the stock market, which really got going around 1994. Yep. And as we know, uh, blew up around 2001. Yeah, March of 2000, right. And so that, you know, set the baby boomers back right. for retirement. Right. And then time started to pass. Yeah. And they started to get nervous that they didn't, that they weren't where they wanted to be. Yeah. And guess what comes along? The real estate market starts to get inflated. Yes. And then suddenly it's like, hey, you know, I can go out and borrow a gazillion dollars that I could never borrow in any other circumstance. Uh, control an inflated huge piece of property and flip that baby and I'm going to be fixed to retirement and right. I'll get it done in one clean swoop. Right. I'll short, I'll circumvent the system. I'll shortcut it. And anytime these things occur, yeah. it happens in all bubbles. The financial services industry, uh, we think, become the enablers. Right. They are going to figure out a way to make a buck off of what everybody wants to do. Or two bucks. They're not going to stand there and say, hey, this is too dangerous. Yeah, or two bucks or three bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we think the real estate thing really got cooking in 2003. Yeah. And then, as we know, what happened by the time 2008 rolled around. So I guess the so that was the second bubble. Right. So where are the boomers now? Getting ready to retire, if not retired. 
Yeah, yeah. man, they're, we're in retirement. Right, well, exactly. they are anyways, yeah. Right. And so th- suddenly they are, quote-unquote, by definition, risk-adverse. Right. Right? Right. In fact, in my entire career, I've never seen so many people that are experts on risk these days. Right. Everybody is talking risk. Right. Really? And so we think what that has done is has created a massive funnel to force all this money into the fixed income markets. And the result has been that the that the interest rates are at the lowest level in the history of capitalism and they've been there for 10 years. And we think that's the most dangerous bubble of all because people don't understand what interest rate risk is. Because the last time interest rates peaked? It, shot, it was, yeah, it went the other way, exactly. 1982, man. Yeah, it went the other, exact other way, exactly. It was before it, it was before the entire investment community was employed. Right. It has been so long, nobody understands interest rate risk anymore. Yeah, exactly. And you had LBOs and then all the Fed at 18% and all the kind of mortgages were crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, actually, the, the 30-year bond at 2% now yeah. was, 19, was almost 19% no, in 1982. World. Yeah, different world. That is obviously two ends of the bell curve here. Right, for sure. And we think anything that gets so far away from the mean in our system will eventually come back to the mean. Like that rubber band that you pull, 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 and then let go of it, and then boom, that's what you're talking about. Totally. Yeah. Understood. And so we think it's not unreasonable if you're looking for some reasonable interest rate, you know, that we're locked in at 2% today. If the rates go to 6%, a 25-year U.S. government treasury note yep. locked in at 2%, 100000 would turn into $48,500. You'd be crushed. And the, the biggest... Um, the saddest part of the whole story is that people that are buying uh, uh, all kinds of fixed income securities think that they're doing it with no risk. At least in the real estate market and the stock market, they understood that there was volatility or some potential for problem, but um, not in this case at this point. That's a really good point. So you basically the bond market, the fixed income market is where the has that rubber band is being stretched very, very, very thin. And once that bubble bursts, so to speak, or that rubber band's let go, you'll see a lot of damage and or a lot of sadness. Panic. Yeah, panic. But uh, the end of all bubbles cre- is, is, the, is the end of all bubbles uh, results in panic. Understood. And when people start seeing their statement that they didn't think could go down, go down, they're going to panic. Yeah. And uh, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we don't think it's going to be pretty. No, understood. And, and in general... You know, when people start talking about risk, where do they look for risk? They always look in the rearview mirror. Typically, what yeah. was the last problem yeah. that occurred? Right. So, if you ask most people, what what are the where's the risk these days? They're going to say the stock market and the real estate market. Right. That's where the last. Now, if they would turn around and look in the windshield, yeah, this thing would be staring them right in the face. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really, really good point. And by the way, no one's talking about it. We think, by the way, that if all the money or a lot of the money is concentrated in one of the three areas, that's drawing money from the other two. Right. So the other two should be quite investable. Right. In at least a normal kind of condition. Gotcha. And when the bubble breaks, traditionally that money will go to support back to the other two. 
Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect so sense. So in uh, our strategy at, at this point in time, uh, in the fixed income market is uh, three-month treasury bills. Okay. Not three months in a day, by the way. Right. Three months. That's it. That is it. No, it makes perfect sense. So, Russ, unfortunately, we are running short on time here. So there's two things I'd like to do. One, have you back on because there's still a lot of – I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface here. There's a lot more content that I'd love to get to. And then two, wrap up by asking, I guess, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? And if you can, you earlier you mentioned you have a fund as well. If you can just speak to that a little bit, and then we can wrap up for today. And then I definitely would love to have you back on to continue the conversation. Cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, our RIA model basically is here to support uh, the Tarkio Fund, which is a no-load mutual fund that we manage. Um, you can reach us or find us uh, just by googling the Tarkio Fund. I think if you put Missoula, Montana, it would pop right up. Or you could uh, Google uh, Front Street Capital Management, Missoula, Montana. We should pop right up. And our um, uh, websites are meant to be educational. And, uh, in fact, on our Front Street website, uh, we have an annual meeting every year where clients come in and fire questions at us for a couple of hours. Uh, all those meetings are posted up on the website in video form. Okay. And... Um, and uh, the, I think the key to our mutual fund is that there is no, if you go direct to the fund, there is no minimum. Okay. And our, the philosophy behind that is that, you know, we just want money that would get, can stick. Understood. Because we think if it sticks, we can compound it. But even if larger money comes in and then leaves, it doesn't do either of us any good. Understood. And that speaks to your point earlier where you see people just, you know, they hire one manager, it doesn't work, they leave, they hire another one, leave, doesn't, you know, that's not what you're looking for. Exactly. Right. Right. Well, this is uh, fantastic. Russ, thank you very much for being on the show. We'll definitely have you back on to continue the conversation. And um, it was just, it's, it was absolutely a pleasure. It was a pleasure on this end, man. Thanks. I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Take care.